Other banks go out of their way to make redeeming credit card rewards needlessly complicated, like how they require minimums or force you to use your rewards before reaching some arbitrary expiration date. But Discover isn't like that. With Discover, you can redeem your rewards for cash in any amount at any time. So you'll never have to jump through hoops. Unless you're like a trapezist, then by all means, go right ahead. Learn more at discover.com slash redeem rewards. Terms apply. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, and for the next ooh, four hours, I'm going to be your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to believe. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, and the Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. Now, if you'd like to uh, give us uh, an email, send us an email, I should say, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV. And if you'd like to find out about the great programming we have available for each and every one of you, 24-7-365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. My first guest uh, this hour, Exxon Nation, is Ryan Pe- uh, Peterson. Uh, he is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew uh, thought and theology. He received his BA from the University of Rochester and his JD from Columbia University Law School. He resides in New York City area with his family. And Ryan, welcome to the X-Zone. Rob, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. It's great having you with us. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, and you know, the name uh, of your website is Judgment of the Nephilim. Tell us how you got from, you know, you're, you're, you're a, an ancient Hebrew scholar, you've got your degree in law, and here you are writing about the Nephilim. How did you do that? <laughs> yes, uh, and it really just goes back to, to growing up. So uh, I grew up a uh, Christian in the church. I right. you know, come from a Bible-believing family, and mm-hmm. so I've been reading the Bible since I was a child. And just, um, But, you know, in terms of academics and my career, mm-hmm. I was much more into, you know, the law. Uh, I went to law school in New York City, Columbia University. And I think the way they kind of merged together is that research and writing has always been a big part of my life. And certainly as I started digging more into the Bible um, as a professional in my career, I just um, really was drawn to a lot of the questions and mysteries that are still out there and parts of the Bible just aren't commonly discussed. And the Nephilim, the account of Genesis 6, is one of the main topics that is really kind of off the beaten path of what churches or Sunday schools normally teach. And so I just really got fascinated by this account because it's something I wasn't really familiar with growing up. And it's just an amazing topic, really talking about the fallen angelic world, right. the spirit realm, and the supernatural aspects of the Bible. It's funny because you you are, I would imagine, an expert in both areas of law, the law of God and the law of man, and they go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. I never thought about, that, about it that way, but uh, yes, that is true. So you're a double le- legal beagle. <laughs> exactly. No offense meant, by the way. <laughs> no, no, none taken, <laughs> none taken. All right. <laughs> Why the title, Judgment of the Nephilim, for your book? 
Well, you know, in, in my research, what I really wanted to do was go through, I felt like I wanted to really do a thorough look in the Bible at every passage that pertains to the history of the giants, because, right. and and they're really not fringe characters. When you go through the Old Testament, they play a pivotal role in many of the events of the Old Testament. And I got, I, I just discovered a lot of startling new revelations that aren't commonly discussed about the Nephilim. But one of the, to me, the biggest one, one of the biggest ones in, that in the book mm-hmm. was about the specific, this, a chapter in Ezekiel that deals with the actual judgment of the angels who sinned, their Nephilim offspring, and really describes the whole destruction of the pre-flood world. And it was just a chapter that really stood out to me because it was just, again, one of these aspects of the book that I had never really so discussed in any of the books I had read about the Nephilim. So to me, it was kind of the pivotal turning point in the book. So I just named it after that. Let me ask you this question, my friend. Is the, is the fact that the world was destroyed pre-Noah because of the Nephilim? Was God trying yeah. to purge the Nephilim from this planet and uh, the existence of mankind, with mankind? Absolutely. And that's and that's also one of the main um, points of the book is that when we understand Mm -hmm. that what was taking place in Genesis six, that this illicit relationship between the fallen sons of God, as Genesis six states, and the daughters of men between the angels, fallen angels and human women, that not only caused a genetic corruption, but a spiritual corruption. It was threatening the human genome itself. And this all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where God told Satan when Adam and Eve and the devil are being judged after the sin in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, God told Satan he would be conquered by the seed of the woman. So it wasn't going to be God striking Satan down with lightning from heaven or a legion of angels attacking him. It was going to be a son, a human child, a human son would be born one day who would conquer him. So that put Satan on notice that his defeat would come through the human race. And so his efforts at that point were to thwart that Messiah from coming. And I, and I just, I described the Nephilim as his nuclear weapon against humanity to try and corrupt humanity and destroy us before that Messiah could arrive. Why don't we step back a little bit for the listeners who may not be, uh, as knowledgeable as, as a lot of our other listeners are when it comes to the Nephilim. So could you explain to our listeners who the Nephilim were? Absolutely. So in, in, uh, again, in Genesis chapter six, mm-hmm. which is describing, um, the, you know, the earth basically about two to three generations after the birth of Adam and Eve, it discusses a, a time when the human population was growing and at, there was a, basically an invasion where fallen angels called the sons of God or the Benaiha Elohim in Hebrew, they basically came into the earthly realm and took human women as wives and married them. And they had offspring. And this offspring, who were half angelic, half human hybrids, were called the Nephilim. And so they, um, what, what the result of that was, these were giants. These were giants. They, the, the Bible calls them the mighty, mighty men, men of renown. Mm-hmm. These were the demigods of old. So when you think of things like Hercules, Achilles, right. and all these accounts from various cultures, this is referring to that age. And the Bible states that they overran the world with violence and corruption. And again, they were the reason that the flood was necessary to save humanity and restore and reboot the human race. So they were the fallen angels. Uh, They were the giants of old. Yes. They were the, the demigods of many other religions. Exactly. And that's a big thing that I bring out is that, uh, you know, there's a treasure trove of, uh, Christian and Jewish sources that mm-hmm. write on this, on the Nephilim, going back to the first century church fathers and Jewish uh, rabbis of that day, all the way up to the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And what they say is, you can go back to even the second century, Justin Martyr, a church father, he wrote in, you know, very clearly that the mythologies of ancient Greece are all relating back to this account, that all these different accounts in various cultures are all talking about this specific era, and the demigods or the titans these are a reference to the Nephilim. What are members of the theological philosophy saying about your book? Uh, you know, the, the, the feedback thus far has actually been has been good. Excellent. I've, um, you know, I actually just had conversations uh, earlier this week with Gary Stearman of Prophecy Watchers, who's a yep. very well-respected theologian. He, he said this is one of the most well-researched um, 
and best books he's read in 40 years. And so on a number of pastors have reached out to me as well, because this is a topic that is not always readily accepted in the church because it's, it's kind of a bizarre concept. And it's not commonly taught in seminaries. But thus far, the, re- the response to the book has really been great. And I think that's because the point I wanted to make, and, you know, and again, it's really the legal background, is I wanted to build a case. This sure. book is not everything. Every assertion is backed with a lot of scripture. And so that's why I think there's a more of a comfort level and acceptance to what's being put out there. I think what your book has done, uh, Ryan, is put together the missing pieces of the crime scene. Because Precisely. You know, Precisely. I, I'm an ex-criminal investigator, and, ah. and I worked very closely with the, with the Crown prosecutors up here in Canada when I was, when I was a cop. And I, I love the Bible. I, I don't know how many times I've read the Bible. I have a Bible here that was printed in the 1800s, and it's in a leather-bound uh, cover. Oh, wow. And when you looked at there, there are so many mysteries in the Bible, and this was one of them. Like, why did God destroy the earth? It didn't make any sense. Because, you know, are, are you a father? I am. Okay, I'm a Indeed, father. Yes. I'm, a, I'm a grandfather as well. Uh, it, it never made sense to me why God would destroy his own children. But then when you look at the, the facts that you're bringing out about the demigods and basically the, the, the spoiling of the genetic uh, de- uh, deposition and disposition of future mankind, it makes perfect sense. Exactly. And, 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 and you put it so well by referring to it as the missing pieces of a crime scene, because I think these are legitimate questions you yes. know, that, that I think that as believers, we have to answer. Why would God, you know, bring in a global flood that wiped right. out the entire population, save eight people? And I think it's a very valid question that people raise. And I think when you look at the Bible in this context of the Genesis 6 context, of mm-hmm. the Nephilim context, then it really brings a whole new light and that yep. rather than it just being the act of an angry arbitrary violent god who's irrational and just just making knee-jerk judgment it's this is a story of redemption uh, gary stand love. by uh, i'm sorry ryan please stand by you and i have to take sure. our commercial break exonation sure. fascinating conversation with ryan peterson this hour he's the author of judgment of the nephilim www.judgmentofthenephilim.com we'll be back after this break don't go away Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo-TV plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games, No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. 
It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the esoteric series, modern esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Exonation Ryan Peterson is my special guest this hour. He is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew, thought, and theology. He received the BA from the University of Rochester and his JD from Columbia University Law School. He resides in and about the beautiful Big Apple, known as uh, New York City. Hey, isn't that uh, isn't that funny? Here you live in the area of the Big Apple, then you have the the apple of the sin, and, you know, hey, <laughs> see how it all works out? I, I love synchronicities. Absolutely. You are, you are an expert at synchronicity. I'm learning that very quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, looking at the Bible, and, and especially this part of the Bible, why wouldn't the church and the church elders have, have gone into this, investigated it, to fill in the missing pieces. Like, what are they afraid of? I think that, uh, I think there are several, several things they're scared of. So I think one, again, is just, you know, the general, a lot of it, again, is just the, the modern day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to emphasize that the modern day seminary education completely omits this. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, I've spoken to many pastors that this is not a part of any type of pastoral education they receive. And then I think also there's just, there's just the fear factor that you don't know how a congregation is going to respond to it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, for many churches, it's just, out, you know, as odd as it may sound, when you're, when you're going to church to worship a God who created the universe, right. many, you know, this is really small on that scale. I mean, the Bible is a supernatural book, but these types of topics, you know, they, they shy away from. But again, I say that, you know, in the 19th century, in the 17th century, and that's yep. why I quote a number of theological resources, um, whether it's pastors, theologians, or lay people writing on the Nephilim, this was very commonly believed. So, um, and it wasn't until the early 20th century that this was kind of, there was a big move away from even giving any credence to this idea. This, this opens up, like this is the Rosetta Stone uh, uh, biblical history here, as far as I'm concerned, because what this does is it answers a lot of questions. For example, how come we don't hear about Greek mythology after the Great Flood? Well, that's because everybody was gone, guys. Have you ever exactly. noticed that Greek mythology kind of disappears about the same time of the story of the Great Flood? Right, precisely. You know? Precisely. And, and, and you know, uh, I, you know in, in one of the chapters of the book, I really go, I, I quote a lot from Plato and his right. account of Atlantis and show the, you know, the amazing parallel between Plato's account, directly quoting Plato, and the biblical account, whether it's from Genesis or from Ezekiel 31, which I think is one of the most exciting passages that I quote in the book, because again, it's one of these chapters that many people don't even know relate to the giants, the fallen angels before the flood, and the flood itself. And it showed the the many parallels that Plato said that Atlantis was started when Poseidon chose to marry a human woman. That's right. Had, they had a set of, you know, uh, five sets of twins, the oldest being Atlas, who, of course, was half God, half human. And how show how even um, the the Atlantis was 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 near many rivers that, you know, the Garden of Eden had yeah. four rivers running out of it. They talk about the same minerals were there. Mm-hmm. There are many. They said every species of animal was in Atlantis, of course, in the Garden of Eden. Adam's first assignment was to name every species of animal. Right. And even the fact that it was the corruption from these relationships between the gods and the humans that led to the destruction of Atlantis by flood. And so, I mean, many startling parallels. Plus, we know that there are many other stories uh, throughout the um, throughout the Bible and, and other religious philosophies that also reference this flood. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, there are dozens of flood accounts yeah. all through many different cultures. Yeah. Okay. Um, do we know the first woman who was the bride uh, to the son of gods and, and a mother of a Nephilim? Yes, I believe we do. And I believe uh, we find her name in Genesis chapter 4, and that would be Nema. And she, of course, is the daughter of Lamech, who is the seventh generation from Adam, but through the lineage of Cain. Of course, Cain was the wicked son. You know, Cain was the first son born from Adam and Eve. Right. His brother Abel was a good son who, he, who, and of course, Cain murdered Abel and was banished from Eden. And when you go through his lineage in Genesis 4, it's very fascinating. What I, what I point out is that as you go through the lineages, there are many genealogists in the Bible where you see, you know, the typical Abraham begat mm-hmm. Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. But what I show is that especially in Genesis, when you're looking at those genealogies, there are what I call special references where certain infamous, notorious figures in biblical history get four, five, six verses devoted to describing them. And Lamech, when you get to him in Genesis 4, the three generations before him are described in one verse. When you get to Lamech, it's eight verses devoted to him. And what you see is that it describes, first of all, he was the first polygamist in the biblical record. He married two women, Ada and Zillah. And the Bible not only mentions them, but mentions all three of his sons, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. And what you see in this family is this intellectual explosion. Jabal, it says, was the father of tent-making and cattle herding, animal husbandry. Jubal is the father of instruments, the father of music. He created the first instruments. And Tubal-Cain was the father of blacksmithing. They said he was an artificer of metals. So you have this huge explosion in this family that is rebellious against God, first of all. Tubal-Cain means he shall go in the way of Cain. So he was named in honor of Cain, the first murderer. And what you also find is they give reference to the sister of Tubal-Cain. says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And so this family, you know, this is way, this is an anomaly in the biblical account where every family member is named. Now, in the in the 1,656-year history in the biblical record before the flood, there are only four women mentioned by name, Eve mm-hmm. and the three women I just mentioned in this family of Lamech. And so what I think happened, what I, the, the conclusion I draw on from Scripture and from other theological sources was that this was the family and the generation that the sons of God came and made this transaction. Because when you look to extra biblical texts like the book of Enoch, it says, it says explicitly that the, the sons of God who sinned with human women gave knowledge in exchange for the hand and marriage of, the, of these wives. And I believe this was the family in Scripture. Scripture is telling us to pause here and look that there's something incredibly significant happened here in this family. And they, for exchange for Nama's hand in marriage, received all sorts of knowledge of arts and sciences. And um, so, yes, I believe Nama is that one. And her name means beauty in Hebrew. And I found two um, very great theological sources from, from um, a pastor and a theologian from the 18th and 17th centuries that ex- explicitly say that this was the, she was the first bride of the sons of God who seduced them and started this whole Nephilim birth and takeover. All right, counselor. <laughs> we know what the crime is. We know, yes. who, we know who the perpetrators are. Yes. What was the motive? Why were these Nephilim or demigods or the, why were, why, why were they expelled from heaven? Well, I think that when you look at the, you know, there are two passages in the New Testament, in particular Jude verses six and seven and second mm-hmm. Peter uh, chapter two, that specifically talk about the angels and they're kind of what happened to them, their motive. And, you know, Jude said that the angels left their first estate. That so it was almost that they chose. And I think that what happened was that you know Satan's job. Satan is called the tempter in the Bible. I believe he instigated the temptation for them to take on human women as wives. And I think that originally their original their original state and habitation was to just watch over humans, you know, in a in a godly protective role. But they succumb to sexual lust. You know, the Bible is clear that angels in heaven do not marry. So when they saw, you know, they're observing humans doing something they've never seen before, marrying and procreating. I think that instigated a sinful temptation because, you know, the testimony of Jude is that they left 
their position, their station to go after strange flesh. And it says Justice Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm. in fornication. So it was sexual temptation that got the best of them and led to their own corruption. Okay. So if God is the creator of everything, why did he allow Satan to get away with all this instead of getting rid of Satan when he had the opportunity or he, you know, apparently if he could have done this at any time, why did he allow Satan to persist and why did he allow Satan to get away with all of this? Great question. I think that ultimately, and this is, you know, what I try to do is give mm-hmm. a close-up view of Scripture, but also the meta view, the right. thirty-five thousand foot view, and is that God's plan of redemption allows for evil. Humans commit sin every day. Yep. The devil commit, has committed many other sinful acts and temptations outside of Genesis six, but this is all working out to a day that God will judge all creatures in heaven and in earth and below the earth, and those who have faith in God and are unified with Him will be will receive eternal life. And so ultimately, everyone is going to be in a position where they're ultimately we're, we're choosing to align with God or choosing to align with Satan. And so that's so I think that's how things have played out and, and all the way up to the to the crucifixion of Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, God is willing to allow evil up to the point that he allowed his own son to be tortured and killed on the cross. You know, that's no no greater gift. And no greater act of, of love than doing that on God's part. And so I don't know if I call that love. Are working out. I don't know if I call that love. I certainly want to see wouldn't want to see any of my children go through that. I'd certainly do what I could to interfere. And Absolutely. If I was a God, yeah. if I was God, I would just say, uh, 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 you're not going to do that to my boy. Bang. But <laughs> yeah, I but I guess the prophecy. But I guess the prophecy should have that feeling because yeah. we are humans. But God is. God's purposes and ways are way above us. And that was our way. And when you think about it, the story of redemption is not just spiritual. It's physical. We receive a new body. So this is about as much about the spirit as it is about genetics and being genetically of God. Ryan, stand by. We've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exxon Nation, Ryan Peterson is our special guest. His website is judgmentofthenephilim.com, and we'll be back on the other side as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon. Don't go away. From our broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond. You're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. AVS Media Day. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 
401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnix, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the Word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, After the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. And welcome back, everyone. Uh, if you're a skeptic or you're a believer, you can join me Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern. And uh, visit the broadcast schedule at xzbn.net to find out when we are on throughout the weekend because the times do stagger. And uh, the X Chronicles newspaper is still available for one and all at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. Ryan Peterson is my guest, www.judgmentofthenephilim.com. Have the Nephilim been back to earth, spinning their misery, committing their crimes after the flood? Yes, they did reemerge after the flood. And the, the clearest indication of that is in Numbers chapter 13, where right after the Exodus, when the mm-hmm. Israelites are about to enter the promised land, uh, Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out this promised land and the, and they come back and 10 of them have what they call an evil report. And they said they saw three of the Nephilim, the giants, the sons of Anak, and they were so scared. They said we were as grasshoppers in their own, in their sight that they doubted that God could even deliver them to defeat three giants. And this is after the Exodus coming out of defeating Pharaoh and his army, the mightiest empire on earth. Three giants scared them to the point that they doubted God could even defeat them. That's not good. No. <laughs> so what happened? So I think that what the, you know, the flood served the purpose of the ultimate deterrent against the angels. You know, mm-hmm. the, again, the book of Jude says the angels who cohabitated with human women were locked in the abyss in chains under darkness until the great tribulation. And so I think that to quote John Fleming, a theologian who wrote extensively on Nephilim, he said this put a period on the illicit relationships between angels and women. But I think what happened was that the genetic, the DNA of the giants passed through on the ark. And I think that happened through the wives of Noah's son, specifically the wife of Ham. And uh, when you look in scripture, there's something very interesting about Noah in that all the patriarchs before Noah in his lineage uh, they had their first child, usually by age 60 to 90. Mm-hmm. It says they had their first son, and, and you go through the lineage, and each one goes like that. Noah did not have his sons until he was 500 years old. And why that is significant is that by the time he had his first son, God had already told Noah to build the ark. He'd already given the, the earth 120-year probation before the flood. And God had already stated that all flesh had become corrupt. So the odds of Noah finding three wives for his grown sons once they grew up to who had no Nephilim DNA was slim to none. And I believe when you look at Ham, who turned out to be a wicked son, as proven a couple of chapters later, he would have no regard for the prophecy of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, any of those things. And I think that when you trace the lineages by going carefully through scripture, you see that all of the post-Diluvian giants can be traced back to Canaan, who was the son of Ham. 
How do we know this, this is real? How do we know that this isn't just metaphor? How do we know that these giants really did exist? I think the, you know, for, for proof and evidence, I think mm -hmm. the greatest, aside from the fact that there's, again, testimony in many cultures about giants, for one. Right. But two, I also point to the megalithic structures that are still here today all over the world. Mm -hmm. That, um, again, where you talk about thousands of tons of stones being assembled in line with, you know, astral alignments, whether it's with the sun or with stars. And in particular, I actually put a photograph in the book of Gilgal Rephaim, which is located in the Golan Heights in Israel. And this is uh, a series of concentric circles that was discovered in Israel during the Six Day War in 1967. It's built on a high hill. And they found it when spy planes were flying over and took aerial photos of it just accidentally. And this is made of 40,000 tons of basalt stones arranged again in those concentric circles. And it is older than Stonehenge. And, you know, when you look at it, just secular archaeologists say they have no idea how this possibly could have been built, much less all this stone hauled up a high hill. Right. And, what's, and of course, it's also in alignment with the sun and several stars. And... What I show in the book is you have the photograph of Gilgal Raphaim, which, by the way, means wheels of the giants. And below it, a, a 19th century sketch of Atlantis based on Plato's description, and they're almost absolutely identical. So can we say that in theory Atlantis has been found? <laughs> yes, in theory, I think it's definitely been found. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Maybe a little dicey for some of our listeners, so mom and dad... Put your hands over the ears of your little ones or turn up their, their ear pods. How would mortal women have sex with giants? Like, how did, they, how did they have sex? How did they have kids? Well, I know how they have kids, but how did they act? Yeah, happen? sure. So, so certainly with the first, with the angels, the mm -hmm. Bible is very clear in, in Genesis 6. It says they went in unto them. You know, Jude says fornication. So, I mean, they're saying that this is sexual relations. This was not a scientific experiment. They weren't doing IVF. This was fornication, sexual uh, relations. And so uh, with the giants, yeah. it, it doesn't really describe it in that same way, but it says that, for example, it talks about in, in uh, first and second, first Chronicles, it talks about these giants in Gath. And this is that they were born of the giant. Their fathers were giants. So just by, by implication, if their if their forefathers were actually fornicating, I have to think that that's that they were the giants were as well. And and there's a very interesting passage uh, in First Corinthians 15 scripture that talks about the celestial body and the terrestrial body. The apostle Paul is making this this contrast between them, and it, he goes on to say that unto every being that God has given a body, He's given a seed, and the implication there is that celestial beings have a seed. They can reproduce. And, of course, this is proven. The, the greatest example of that is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, a divine, the divine spirit of God. It says put a seed supernaturally in, in Mary. All right, and but so, outside of the realm of biblical uh, passages, yeah, sure. how could this be accomplished if you have a giant with a normal-sized um, woman without tearing her from limb to limb, so to speak. Well, interesting. So, I, so there are, um, there are accounts of this, of the, of describing kind of the intimacy and they don't actually talk about the, they kind of just, just kind of say that they had sexual relations, but mm -hmm. say that there are some accounts where it's rabbinical and some just other cultures, pagan sources that say that the women actually had the pain in, in childbirth, that once they gave birth to a giant, they died. So it wasn't so much the beginning of the process that was devastating to the woman. It was giving birth to a giant that killed them. And that account's found in several cultures. Okay. But once again, besides the biblical passages, yep. what evidence do we have that the giants actually did exist? Is there any physical evidence that has been found, archaeologically or otherwise, to substantiate and to further evidence the fact that the giants really did exist, as in the biblical passages? 
Uh, yeah. So, um, I would say that, you know, so there's, I think I would say there's two sources of that. So you have, um, so there are some researchers who really, that they put their focus on tracking down the bones. Uh, L.A. Marzulli comes to mind first. He's in a number of documentaries and books strictly focusing from an archaeological perspective to dig up giant bones. L.A.'s been on this show many, many times. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. So, um, and uh, and he's done, again, done a, a great deal of work on that, on the trail of the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And what there are also secular sources that I cite in the book, and they're not recent. There, there are some from Roman historians, some Egyptian historians that talk about giant bones and skeletons being on display. That they, you know, these are just completely non-Christian, non-Jewish Roman historians who are some of the best historians to me of antiquity, mm-hmm. saying that they have the bones of giants that are on display like museum items, basically. But how come we don't have any of these bones in any of the museums that we have today, and yet we have dinosaur bones? In these museums, that, and the dinosaur bones predate the giants. Uh, one, I agree with you that they predate the giants, and two, I, I think that um, that's a great question. So, some will say that there's been a conspiracy to conceal the bones. I haven't done much research mm-hmm. into that, um, but aside from that, I, I really can't answer it because you know even Josephus in the first century said there were bones in Jerusalem that were of giants, they were of Nephilim. But where, so where are they? So I think it's a good question. Oh. I think that. But don't we need yep. to don't we need to take a closer look at the at the size or, or the stature of the average person who lived in the Middle East in those times and then correlate it with a taller person. For example, I'm six foot nearly six foot six. I go to I go to China, I go to Japan, I'm a giant. Yep. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, could it absolutely. be a sim- could it be as simple as this that a giant was actually a tall person? You know, I think that's I think that's a very I think that's a fair argument. What yeah. I would say to that mm-hmm. is that I think that's what Scripture says when Scripture describes and again and there are secular sources that say the same thing. So they're talking about you know switching it from cubits to feet. That there are giants that are eight, nine feet tall, ten feet tall. You know, when you look at the description of Goliath, they say his armor alone weighed over two hundred pounds that he was wearing on his body. So it's highlighting the fact that he has a strength that is way beyond even that of just a tall person. And so, I think that the descriptions of the height would go beyond someone who says, you know. Sure like your height, for example, or Shaquille O'Neal, or someone who's just extremely tall and big. It's really beyond the normal How, However, we've got, we've got to take our final break, but before we go, I'd just like to, uh, to put something out there. I know this man who travels around the world in one night delivering toys to every child under their Christmas tree. His name is Santa Claus. We know that he doesn't exist, but he does marvelous things. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is TV. TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, sci-fi, and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. The new nonfiction book, Razor of Madness, is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee Howe will expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought reform and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. 
Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness Exposé Novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades, there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com. I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multifamily dwellings. Slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com. Nation Ryan Peterson is our special guest, www.judgmentofthenephilim.com. Before we went to the commercial break, I gave the fast overview of Santa Claus. Now, we all know that he really doesn't go around the world overnight delivering millions and millions and millions of toys to little good boys and little good girls. We know that he doesn't fly through the sky in a sleigh with eight tiny reindeer and have these little elves. Mind you, if you look at the elf and you look at Santa Claus, that can be perceived by the elves as a giant who does mystical, wonderful things. So looking at it through the same um, same lens, is it possible that there are more metaphors in the Bible than there is fact? Uh, it, it's it's possible, but I would say not probable. And Why the reason not? for that again is really is the totality of the evidence from from other non Christian sources. But there's the no great, physical the big, evidence. The big, oh, there, sorry, there's no there's no physical evidence. It's all hearsay. And what does hearsay do in a court of law? Oh, it does does it doesn't fly? It doesn't fly. I mean, I think that you know at the at the at the end of the day, yeah. uh, you know. People are going to come to believe in the Bible based on faith. That's ultimately. right. But exactly. I think, I think in terms of proof, in terms of proof and evidence, I do think, and I think it's definitely evident with the flood, is that if you just study cultures from a purely secular perspective mm-hmm. and see the amount of cultures that have a history of a global flood taking place with no, again, no, again, looking at multiple cultures, right. at some point you would say that there is a great likelihood they're all speaking of the same event. Either that, that either that, or either that, or floods that in their specific region to them was tremendous. Sure, it could, it could be that, but then you find that, say, like you know, in in the uh, ancient Chinese or what was the area that is now known as China mm-hmm. um, account, they specifically say that there were eight people who survived on a vessel. Again. So, you know, at some point when you start examining them and you see the commonality of the account, and these are cultures that had no communication with each other when you're talking four to five thousand years ago. So there'd be no way for them just to be sharing the same stories at a library or a common meeting. Um, Then I think it it starts to make a case that this probably happened. They're probably talking about the exact same thing. And I see again that it's easy for us living in the world we live now, the modern technological era we're in, to just look back at the Egyptians and think that they built all these massive structures and drew all these beings, and it was all imaginary. They devoted decades and millions of people in labor Mm -hmm. and hours of labor to, to figments of their imagination. It's easy 
for us to take that view, I would admit that was not the case, that they were they were real spiritual beings that they were worshiping. Yeah, but you see, and when it comes were, to the Egyptians, yeah. there's evidence that of what they built. They have the Sphinx. They have the pyramids. You can actually see it, but when it comes to a lot that is in the Bible, it lacks physical evidence. Now, let's take the, let's take the, the global flood, for example. If, in fact, we take the flood that Noah is well known for, how did the polar bears get to the Middle East? How did the penguins get to the Middle East? How did, you know, like, there are so many questions that cannot be answered that, in my mind, just toss the theory of a global flood, one guy, uh, 40 days, 40 nights, raining, causing this massive flood right out the window. Sure. Well, I think I think that, well, to your questions about polar bears and penguins, I think the Bible teaches that the earth was a Pangea that broke up into continents. So that, to me, was that actually is not a big hurdle from a biblical standpoint, because I think that's what the Bible teaches. Ah, uh, you see, but you you, know. you're saying from a biblical standpoint. Sure. But sure, I, well, you're I'm, asking I, me to defend the Bible. So I, no, you're no, saying, so. how does the Bible account for this? I'm, I'm trying to explain to you that's how the Bible account. The Bible doesn't teach seven continents until after the flood. And again, you can have an elementary school student take the continents and assemble them like puzzle pieces to say that South America fits with Africa. Yes, but, we know, but, we, know, but so, we know that all happened prior to the, club, uh, the flood. We know that was before the flood. You know that. I, I, I Science will tell you that. Archaeology will tell you that. Okay. I mean, I'm just, I'm just letting you know. Yeah. Because I thought you raised the point to say the Bible doesn't, it doesn't have an answer to that. But it, it, that's, that's what it teaches that it took place after the flood. So penguins would could be anywhere. Polar bears could be. There was no. It was one landmass. So. But once again, that was the separation of the continents happened well, well before the flood. So, when we look at the first four books of the Bible, we're looking at the books that were written by Moses, right? Yes. Uh, if, you know, so, the, there are so many questions, so many questions, and yet so very few answers. For example, Genesis it says, And God said, Let us create man in our image, in our likeness. If he is the only creator, who the heck are the other people, and why the plural? Well, you know, Job 38, again, you know, there's a lot, a lot of this is kind of what I call Christian cultural beliefs, mm -hmm. right? So Job 38 specifically says that the angels, the sons of God, yeah. the Benaiha Elohim and the morning stars sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. The earth is not uh, 6,000 years old. Angels predate the creation of humanity and the creation of the earth. They witnessed it. So there are many beings for God to speak to. This, that's the testimony of the Bible. That's not commonly taught, but that's exactly what the Bible says. But why isn't, God, it, but why yeah, isn't but, it taught? Again, I think a lot of it is you, you can, again, if you, if you have a Schofield Bible that dates back to the, 20th, the big turn of the 20th century, mm -hmm. it will tell you very clearly that the Bible is, is an, it takes an old earth perspective you know, to use a slang term. Yeah. But when you hit the 1920s, you have a movement away from these things, away from these positions, and away from a supernatural view of the Bible. But again, the Bible's clear that angels witnessed the creation of the earth and were singing in joy, you know, to praise God. So there were many beings God was speaking to. Like, they say the number of angels yeah. is innumerable. So there were many for God to speak to at that time of creation. Who, of crea humanity. Who created God then? Well... The Bible says God is self-existent; that He's always existed. I mean, that's a great, you know, these are these are the the, the great, that's probably the greatest uh, theological question you can ask, you know. And uh, um, but you know, the testament of God is that He exists outside of time, right? So we are finite beings. A finite universe. A finite beings are created by a being who's outside of the finite world. And so once we're talking about going beyond time, mm -hmm. then it's kind of then. It's a whole different perspective on what is created and made. You know, because when we're created, it implies a clock, implies a starting point, an end point. And if you're outside of time, those things are not even a part of the existence. In today's sociological atmosphere, where information and data is so accessible, 
I think this is one of the biggest problems that religion is having today because as society has evolved, religion has stayed in the past. It hasn't kept up with humanity. It hasn't kept up with mankind. It hasn't kept up with, with um, how we have grown. And I think that this is why people are asking so many questions and breaking away from the established religions and looking for newer religions. You know, I think that's an amazing point. And I would say, I would submit that the problem with the church mm -hmm. is not so much that we haven't kept up with society, is that we've tried to accommodate society. The church and large has tried to turn teaching sound biblical doctrine into entertainment and smoke shows and, and you know, having 50 performers on stage and, and teaching the Bible for five minutes and or focusing on prosperity and making more beautiful and making money, mm -hmm. as opposed to the fact of pointing out that despite our technology, despite our advances, humanity is more depraved and violent than ever. I mean, just look at the amount of, you know, the, the count, the body counts. Sure. Between wars and murders inside in this past century, mm -hmm. it dwarfs any other century. Well, that's because there are more. Depravity. That's that's because there are more people on or this per planet capita, per capita. You, you you know, however you want to, however you want to quantify that, right? So, I mean, and and the amount of depravity in our society today, the things that are taking place. If you read, I mean, I live in New York. Right. You know, all we have to do is read the papers every day. If you want to know how depraved, or watch the local news to know how depraved society is today, to me, is worse than ever. And when you preach the Bible accurately, you preach the gospel that we are all sinners. We haven't escaped it. Despite our advances, we have not elevated our morality. We're not, we're not kinder to each other. I mean, look at the amount of hatred in the news every day. Look at the racial attacks. Look at the sexual attacks and assaults. And the, and the, I mean, look at schools today. We have teachers sleeping with students. Every other week there's a story about that. I mean, depravity is on the rise despite how advanced we are from a technological standpoint. And I think the solution to the reason for that is because technology can't change the heart. Technology cannot make someone a better person. It can make us smarter, wiser, make us more efficient, mm -hmm. but it can't change the heart. It's the power of God and the gospel, the true biblical gospel that changes the heart. Trust me, I know, because I was out in these streets as depraved as can be. And now I've, I live a different way. And it's because of God, not because of me, not my own effort to say, now I'm going to will myself to be good. It's God working change in me. And that's the true message the church has moved away from. Ryan, our time is up for tonight. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And Exo Nation, Ryan Peterson has been my guest. And his website is www.judgmentofthenephilim. We'll be back on the other side of this break at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Are you or is someone you know struggling with addictions, depression, anxiety, relationships, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, grief, success, and prosperity? Do you know that your subconscious belief plays a big role in the outcome of your hard work? 
we can help you permanently change the beliefs that may be the reason for your struggles and failures. We care about getting you the return on your investment and the results you are looking for. We can help you be free of the limitations of your past and in realizing your highest potential. We work with people by phone and Skype. For more information, visit us at www.ritasoman.com. That's www.ritasoman.com. Do you think you have energy problems in your home? Do you feel better when you're away than when you're home? Joey Korn is a global leader in the world of dowsing who specializes in personal energy clearing and space clearing. He can help you create an ideal energy environment in your home no matter where you live in the world. Learn about his remote spiritual house cleaning services and much more at www.dowsers.com. You can get Joey's book, Dowsing, A Path to Enlightenment, as well as other dowsing books and tools, Kabbalah books, and Walter Russell books. Joey's work is really amazing. Go to dowsers.com right now. That's D-O-W-S-E-R-S dot com or call 1-877-DOWSING. That's 1-877-369-7464.